And while you're doing that, I have a, a question that will probably apply to everyone in the room, except perhaps Samuel and Mason and some other very little ones. But how many of you, uh, by show of hands, have ever been eight years old? Come on, this is the participation part of the program. Thank you. Is anybody in the room currently eight years old? Yeah, I thought so. We have an entire baseball team back here. No, no joke. In their jerseys, the whole deal. So we're excited about that. Eight years old. I, w- I would like for you to, to go back in time with me a few years to when I was eight years old. And I want to introduce you to someone that in many ways, as I've looked back over my life, has transformed the way that I see particularly one of the characters in this story today that we are going to talk about in just a moment. So to do that, we got to go over a couple of states to our east, to South Carolina. I grew up in Greenville in the upstate, lived on a street called Lowell Water Road. 12 Lowell Water, Lowell Water Road was my address. And at 14 Lowell Water Road was the Simon family. Now the Simon family was a unique family. They had two children. One named Christopher and one named Natalie. Mom and dad were Almina, a unique name, and Tommy. And Almina was about the age to be old enough to be my grandmother. And soon after we moved there, it wasn't sort of like my grandmother. She became my grandmother in a very real sense. I can recall they used to have this very terrible habit of every time somebody would ask me a question or say something to me, I would say, what? Didn't matter if I heard loud and clear, didn't matter if we were three feet away, didn't matter. Didn't matter. I would just say, what? Let me tell you something about Almina Simon. She stopped that habit in me. (laughs) She jerked a knot in me. There there wasn't any of this mess about, I'm going to go home and tell my mom that you got on to me. No. Because you know what my mom would have said? Good. Now I'm going to do it to you also. (laughs) Almina and Tommy were a great family, and they they really did care for me in many ways. Uh, uh, our, our, our driveway was gravel, and their driveway was paved, and so they let me put a basketball goal at the end of their driveway that uh, subsequently resulted in a couple of broken windows in their side of their house, and what are you going to do? That's their fault. They shouldn't have put an eight-year-old with a basketball goal in there. So back to Christopher. Christopher was their son, and Christopher was a unique young man. Christopher, for the entirety of his life, was confined to a wheelchair. Uh, he had a disease called muscular dystrophy, familiar with it. Uh, he had it to such an extreme degree that it made him a paralytic. Uh, it made him completely immobile without the aid of his wheelchair. And I can vividly remember at eight years old, his mother, particularly his mother, Almina, instilling in me what I would have seen at the time as a unique view of paralytic folks, of of folks we might call handicapped or crippled or challenged in some way. And throughout my middle school experience, throughout my high school experience, I had the opportunity to, uh, the the two schools that I went to were integrated schools. And so I had the opportunity to to be with these uh, both physically and mentally uh, impaired and handicapped individuals. And, And I can tell you honestly, that it taught me something about compassion, and it taught me something about patience. And I'm not all that compassionate, and I'm not all that patient, but nonetheless, it taught me something about the uniqueness of people and the unique way that God uses people. And so, young people, I would just challenge you, if you're eight, 
if you're soon to be eight, if you have been eight, take that lesson to heart. Have compassion towards those who aren't like you. Have compassion towards those who suffer literally every day because of the infirmities that they experience. Now that really is not the main point of our passage today, but what I want you to do is to be able to empathize with this paralytic that we are going to meet in just a moment. I, I want you to perhaps, if it's possible, feel what it might have been like to have to be carried around on a stretcher. To, 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 to have to be tended to every minute of the day. To have to have other people perhaps beg for you, and in this case, take you to a place that might have seemed like a last-ditch effort. And so with that backdrop in mind, if you would stand and honor the reading of God's Word, we are again going to be starting in the first verse of chapter 9. I'm going to read through verse 8. I'll read aloud, you follow along, and then I will pray and we will continue. The Gospel writer Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, And getting into a boat, he, that is Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their fate, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Father, we come to you admittedly broken. Uh, Father, even if not in our bodies and our spirit, help us to see that there is a word here for all of us. That there is a word here for our present for our future. Father, I pray that our hearts would be in tune to what you would say to us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Very good. What I would like for us to be on the lookout throughout this passage today is the following. That a genuine faith and a genuine Jesus requires a genuine response. A genuine faith in a genuine Jesus requires a genuine response. And it's going to be my attempt to unpack those three truths throughout these short verses this morning. But let's, let's, let's rewind just a moment and recall that, that we are in the midst of, of a series on uh, the book of Matthew that I, quite frankly, am grateful for because uh, in my studying to prepare for this week, uh, Cody has been out on vacation, so Aaron and I got together several times and discussed a myriad of 
things this week uh, that, that we won't have time to get to this morning, but studying the scripture with others is always um, a fun endeavor. But I didn't have to do a lot of background work. I didn't have to do a lot of uh, historical work. And, and my intent is not to do that this morning because if you've been with us for any length of time, you know things as simple as the fact that, that Matthew's gospel is, is primarily a Jewish gospel. That it is written to, to Jewish followers of Jesus who have just been converted, who, who, are, who are learning to grow in the faith. And also perhaps to some Jewish skeptics who have yet to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. You will also note that the, the, the progression over the last several weeks has been one of, of establishing the, the various ways in which Jesus exercises authority over the world. And we have seen how Jesus has authority over nature. We have seen how Jesus has authority over sickness. We'll see that again in this passage. And in just a moment, I would like for us to see how Jesus has authority over something even much, much greater uh, that has uh, not only an immediate impact on us, but an eternal impact on us. So this issue of authority is one that we cannot miss. I don't want us to get too hung up also in, in the geography of this. Uh, he's crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee. He's going to this town and the other town. And, and, and that's important to, to study perhaps on your own. But for this morning, uh, that's really not integral to uh, our passage, where Jesus is and when he is there. There is some debate about the chronology of chapters 8 and 9 and how linear it is. And again, that's a fun study I would commend you to on your own. But this morning, geography is not our primary concern. And so what I would like for us to do is start in verse 2 and look at this issue of genuine faith. It says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Uh, if you know your Bibles, you know that this account is given in two other places, uh, in, Mar in Mark and in Luke. And in both of those accounts, the details are a bit more flowery. Uh, they're a bit more uh, involved. We, we see these uh, Jesus uh, in a large crowd inside of a house, and these men come, and they, they decide, you know what, I'm, we're not going to be deterred by the large crowd. We're, we're, we're not going to be uh, deterred by the lack of entrance into the building. And so what do they do? They just climb the roof and cut a hole out and lower the man on his mat. That is remarkable. I would have loved to have been there to see that that is some determination, friends, to get this man to the person that these other men obviously believed could take care of the issue at hand. And that's going to be important for us as we go through our time this morning. And I think that also sheds a little bit more light on the next sentence that says this. And when Jesus saw their faith. That is a very interesting phrase. And we can't get around the linguistics of it. The verb there, saw, is saw. It's not this metaphorical thing. It's, Matthew is not saying, well, he, he perceived their faith or he kind of uh, intuitively you know, knew that they had faith. No, it, it, it's kind of like when Peter got out of the boat and he's walking towards Jesus on the water. And what does this Bible say? It says that Peter, what did he, he saw the wind, not saw the trees blowing. To indicate the wind, not, not saw the, the waves crashing to indicate the wind. He actually saw the wind. It's remarkable. Uh, that's why he got so scared. Jesus literally saw 
their faith. How did he see it? He saw it, again, very literally. He saw it in their determination to bring their friend to the feet of Jesus to receive what they thought he needed most. To receive healing. To receive immediate physical relief from the paralysis that had struck this man. By all all we can tell for, for a long time. So Jesus, he saw the faith, he, he, he saw the determination of these friends, and he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And immediately, put, put yourself, as you should often do when you study the Bible, in the place of the first hearers of this story. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we sort of have two groups that we can do that with. We can, we can put ourselves in the immediate hearers, people who were in the house, people who were watching it unfold. But we can also put ourselves in the place of the first readers of Matthew's gospel. And we can see it through their lens as well. For both of those groups, this phrase is jarring. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. And in just a moment, we're going to see how that reveals a genuine Jesus. But let's not leave the faith question just so soon. What does it mean to have a genuine faith? It's a legitimate question that we have to ask. What what does it mean to have the kind of faith that would cause Jesus to look at it and then act? Because make, make no mistake, friends, that's what happened. And I have to be real honest with you, as someone who's uh, not come out of perhaps maybe a more charismatic background, or that just freaks me out. I'm just going to be real clear with you. I mean, Aaron, can I get an amen? We, this week, y'all, we just, I thought, well, I don't never see nobody get healed like that, so I just want to be scared of it. No, I don't want to be scared of it. I want to I see what's going on here. I want to see what Jesus is doing in the life of this man. And so what is genuine faith? Well, perhaps, as is often the case, perhaps we can look at what is not genuine faith to help us get a clearer picture of what genuine faith is. I, uh, from time to time, we, we have uh, warned you against the dangers of something that we call in a broad brush the prosperity gospel. And we are going to continue to warn you against it. We are going to continue to be a broken record on the subject because the New Testament is quite clear that shepherds in the church have an obligation to call out the wolves. So I need you to listen carefully. I need you to listen closely to what I'm about to read to you. There is a man who has a big building in Texas that he calls a church. And his name is Joel. You all know who he is. I just want to read to you an excerpt from one of his books, and I hope and pray this morning that if there's anything in you that would, any inkling of occasion, you think, well, maybe he just has some good things to say. He's so positive. God loves you. And I, I don't know how he said I can't do impressions good. <laughs> Listen, thank you. Uh, can we just let this put it to rest? Because it's deadly dangerous. It shipwrecks people's faith. And it maligns the character of God. Let me just read this to you. And perhaps we'll get a picture of what genuine faith is not. This comes from uh, an an article entry by a a man named Hank Canegraaff. 
who's president of the Christian Research Institute. It's a great, great uh, ministry. It says this, and Osteen does not only use modern-day anecdotes. He's talking about issues of faith and so forth. With great bravado, he impugns biblical characters, including a helpless paralytic in the Gospel of John. Not the same paralytic, but a paralytic nonetheless. In Osteen's twist of the text, Jesus encounters a man by the pool of Bethesda, just, quote, lying around feeling sorry, unquote, for himself. In response to Jesus' quote, simple, straightforward question, unquote, the paralytic begins, quote, listing all of his excuses. I'm all alone. I don't have anyone to help me. Other people have let me down. Other people reach the pool ahead of me always. I don't even have a chance in life. Without a hint of mercy, Osteen continues, quote, is it any wonder that he remained in that condition for 38 years? Is it? Oh, by the way, comes from the book, Your Best Life Now. Perhaps you get cold this winter and you need to start a fire in your house. I would commend that to you. Listen, friends. God help you if you ever, ever treat a sick, paralytic, broken, maimed person like that. What is Joel saying? I don't know. I can't get into his corrupt and depraved mind. But what I can tell you is this. That he is saying quite explicitly that this man laid around in his paralysis for 38 years because he chose to do it. And because he made excuses. And because he just felt sorry for himself. Friends, this this cannot be our attitude towards those who are afflicted. If John chapter 9 teaches us anything, you recall the blind man is is brought to Jesus and the disciples and some of the Pharisees around say, hey, uh, who sinned? Uh, This man or his parents? There got to be somebody's sin involved in this equation. Jesus says, guys, you are missing the entire point of this situation. This man's blindness and his subsequent healing occurred so that you and I might see the glory of God on display. And so genuine faith, by contrast, is not thinking positive thoughts. It's not speaking the right words. It's not uh, quoting the right formula. It's not uh, reading the right books. It's not giving a, C, a, 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 a check to somebody and saying, oh, uh, God's obligated to give to me now. You, you see, but in this issue of healing, this is all most of us know, if we're honest. We, we know the charlatans on the TV. We know... Uh, the, the promoters of the prosperity gospel who, who, who literally go to, to, to the ends of the earth. And, and I, I have been there myself. I have been to Africa and I have watched crippled children and, and I have watched people dying of AIDS. And, I, and where is Benny Hinn at that place? Have you seen him at Children's if you've ever visited there? 
Have you seen him at the cancer wards? Have you seen him at the VA hospitals? Have you? And I hope and pray that, that my intensity here is unwarranted for most of you. Because I hope and pray that you have settled this issue long before you arrived this morning. But what I want you to see is, is, is how deadly dangerous that kind of theology of faith and healing and so forth really is. And, and by seeing how dangerous it is and by seeing how destructive it is and by seeing how deceptive it is, perhaps we can make our way towards a more biblical, more appropriate view of the issue of healing and the issue of faith and how the two work together. And so again, by contrast, genuine faith is not formulaic. Genuine faith does not involve money. Genuine faith does not involve even really what you do. Genuine faith boils down to this one word, and we saw it in one of the songs that we sang. He says, give me faith and trust to do what you say. And most often throughout the scriptures, those two words are the same. Faith and trust are the same. In fact, in Acts 16, 31, you had the, the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas are singing uh, hymns and so forth, and the, uh, the earthquake comes, and, and there's all this chaos and pandemonium, and the jailer is about to uh, kill himself because he thinks he's lost his prisoners. Paul says, hey man, we're here. We're here. We're all here. We're here. Don't do it. The Philippian jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in Acts 16, 31, Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. The most literal rendering of that says, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. When Jesus saw their faith, that's what he saw. He saw their trust. And I'm hopeful that that is at least a little bit helpful to you, because faith seems very abstract to us sometimes. We, we run around talking about, uh, well, I just, I hope something such will happen. Well, I just, I have faith that... They'll come through and I... No, 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 no. God doesn't want you to have that kind of superficial faith in him. He wants you to trust him as implicitly as you trust in the chair you sit in right now. You didn't even have to think about it. You didn't come in this room and make complex calculations in your mind and think about weight ratios and, and, and uh, all this kind of stuff. And you think, I really, really hope this chair thing's going to work out today. You, you just didn't. You trusted. You've come to trust in the integrity of the chair. That chair's going to wear out one day, so don't hold me to it. Next week, you come in and yours falls out. I, I, can't, I don't know what to tell you about that. Talk to the area about that. But God is, God is not a chair. He is God, all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful, all-loving towards those that he has adopted into his family. So, friends, when we, when, when we think about the issue of faith, oftentimes think about what it is not. And then think about who that faith is in. Think about the source of that faith. Th think about the object of that faith. And when you, when you realize that the object of the faith is unshakable, unmovable, 
unchangeable, you can have genuine faith. We'll deal with this issue of how that relates to our physical healing in just a few moments. What about a genuine Jesus? What do we do with that? A genuine Jesus. Picking back up in verse, into verse 2. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your, thought, in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So what about this issue of a genuine Jesus? Recall a genuine faith and a genuine Jesus. Why do I use the word genuine? Because in our day, and honestly throughout church history, there have been a variety of counterfeit Jesuses. I just exposed one of them to you in the form of the prosperity gospel. That's a counterfeit Jesus, friends. He's not a genie. Uh, we have partnerships here. We have a partnership here uh, among uh, people in Salt Lake City who, who, who minister to Mormons. That's a counterfeit Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses, counterfeit Jesus. Muslims believe in the person of Jesus. It's just strong Jesus. And in our day, it's popular, perhaps, particularly, and if you're a young person in high school, college, and, and you're, this is going to bombard you sooner than later, in our modern, hyper-secular world, oh yeah, they want to believe in Jesus. They just want to make him up. It's that simple. They just want to make him up. They want to say things to you and I like, well, uh, Jesus never actually claimed to be divine. That's just something that happened, you know, years later because a bunch of old guys got together and thought, let's just start a new religion. We ain't got nothing better to do today. And for 2,000 years, it's gone on and on, and there's been countless martyrs. And by the way, all, most of those men who, who kind of started this deal, yeah, 11 of them, they paid for with their lives. But, ha, you know, um, just, to, just made it up. I'm summarizing. <laughs> but this is the gist of the argument. Jesus never claimed to be divine. Je Jesus was a good teacher. You've heard, he was a good teacher. He was a moral man. He perhaps was a prophet. That's what Muslims believe. He was a prophet. You've seen it play out in the, in the culture battles of late. Pe people co-opting Jesus. I, I think Jesus would be okay with gay marriage. One of our former presidents said that. Great theologian Jimmy Carter, who used to be a Southern Baptist. Emphasis on used to be. I think Jesus would be okay with gay marriage. Oh, you think that? <laughs> well, that's clever. Um, we live in a day of, I, just, I think Jesus fill in the blank. I think Jesus... We'll be okay with this. I, I think Jesus was just a nice man. I think Jesus was fill in the blank. But friends, for us who claim that Scripture has authority on our lives and claim that what it says is true, we need to look no further than what it says about its main character, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it say? Your sins are forgiven. The scribes said this is blasphemy. Jesus perceived their thoughts, knew their thoughts. Then he says, so you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. 
Remember, we, we, we got to go back to that original hearer, original reader. Now, you and I don't use that phrase hardly ever in our everyday life. But when Jesus said the phrase, Son of Man, it was an unequivocal claim to divinity. Unequivocal. You can find it in Daniel chapter 7. And all of those Jewish hearers and the Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel immediately, immediately in this moment are realizing Jesus is saying something completely unique. He is saying something that is blasphemous in a real sense for a man to claim he has authority that only God has? For, for a man to, to give himself a divine description? It is blasphemy. Now, this isn't the only place in the Scripture where Jesus claims divinity. It happens often. John chapter 8 being perhaps one of the most famous ones. When, when he tells us the, the, the people challenging him uh, about they're just dealing with Abraham and all this kind of stuff. And he says, hey. Newsflash, guys, before Abraham was, I am. And you think, well, that, Jesus, you need to work on your grammar because that doesn't make any sense. No, I am was the way that Yahweh described himself to Moses before Abraham was. Rather, that's, that's not true. Moses was after Abraham. But Jesus' point is, even before Abraham was, I am. I am. And so while certainly the, the, the main takeaway here is, is not necessarily an apologetic defense for the divinity of Jesus, but what we do need to see is that in this text, Jesus tells us plainly who he is. So we can know who the genuine Jesus is. And, and let, me just, let, me, let me just encourage you. I was watching a, uh, a sermon this week by a man named Bodhi Bakum, who's a person that I do respect. I don't agree with everything he has ever written or said, but the man has great insight. And he talked about this issue when Christians, we get into arguments. He meant argument in a healthy sense of the word. We're getting into apologetic arguments with unbelievers. And we say, well, the Bible says, and the unbeliever says, well, I, uh, well, I can't, the Bible, what is the Bible? And all of a sudden, what do we do? I've been guilty of it. Like, oh, well, yeah, I guess you're right. I, well, I'm sorry, I just take my Bible and go home. And I, you know, I, I've been guilty of that. Because after all, right, the Bible says that unbelievers can't interpret the Bible, they can't really understand the Bible. So he gave this great analogy. He said, let's suppose that two knights meet, K-N-I-G-H-T-S, meet on horseback, and they've got their, their jousting, or they've got their swords, and then they're going to come out into a sword fight. And, and one knight pulls his sword, and the other knight says, I, I'm sorry, I just don't even really believe that's a real sword. Like, I, I just... I just don't believe it. So, so does that knight sheathe his sword and, say, and start giving the other knight a lecture in metallurgy and about how, no, this is really a real sword because I, I hammered it out or the blacksmith, he hammered it out and, and it's got this type of metal and it's really strong and it's really sharp. And, and, uh, and, and so and you just get into, the, no, that's nonsense. What, is, what does the knight do? He says, wham, strikes the other knight on the head with the sword and says, do you believe it now? Now. It's a bit of a strong analogy. <laughs> We're not advocating militant warfare style apologetics where we run around and, you know, throw the sword of the spirit at people. I'm not saying that. I am saying, have confidence in your sword. 
Have confidence in your sword. Don't be ashamed of it. And if someone says to you, well, that's just what the Bible says, you're right. You're right. Because that is the source for my truth. That is the source for all truth. That is, the, that is the only place that I know to go to get truth. And then you can say to the person, and guess what? You have a source of truth too. So perhaps we, we just abandon the question that we're discussing and we go to the source of truth. What's your source of truth? Let's analyze your source of truth. Spin it back on them and say, because well, you think so? Because you just decided one day that this is a clever idea? Challenge the presupposition. Challenge their source of authority if they're going to challenge your source of authority. But in this room, our source of authority is the Scripture. And the Scripture says that for Jesus to be genuine, he must not only be a human being, he must be fully God. Fully God. you to go ahead and turn to me into Hebrews chapter 9, if you would. Hebrews chapter 9. We can't miss here what is happening in the flow of redemption history for, for, for Matthew's writing. All of these um, little snippets, these little snapshots of the life of Jesus are, are pointing us forward. In, in the thrust of Matthew's gospel, of course, for those of us on, on having the full scale of Revelation, we, we look back toward the cross and we, we kind of know uh, the ending, so to speak. But even if you're an original reader of Matthew's gospel, you, you should be picking up the momentum heading and pointing towards the cross. And, and not just the physical elements of the cross, not, not just the, the, the act of crucifixion, not just the putting Jesus on trial, not, not just those things. But I'm talking about the theological, redemptive realities present in the cross. And I would like to submit to you that all of the things that Jesus is doing are foreshadowing what is going to happen once and for all in the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's foreshadowing it all. And in this particular segment of our passage, it foreshadows Jesus' ability to forgive sin. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So I would submit to you that Jesus is offering the forgiveness of sin based on his substitutionary death on the cross for sinners. And if we're honest, that messes up our uh, chronology because Jesus is still alive. Jesus hasn't been arrested yet. Jesus hasn't accomplished the work of redemption yet. But just like Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness, based on what Christ would do. The same is true now in this story. That Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because of what he is going to do on the cross. Now, he didn't say that explicitly here. 
And the scribes have one reaction to it, and the crowd has another reaction to it, as we're going to examine as we close in just a moment. But the truth of the matter is that a genuine Jesus is 100% man, 100% God, and has the authority to forgive sins because of what he did on the cross. Not on a whim. Not just, I think it's a good idea today. But because of what he did for this paralytic, and quite frankly, for all of us who are, if I can say it, spiritual paralytics. Every single human being has ever lived is a spiritual paralytic. Every single one. We are incapable of getting ourselves out of the consequence of the sin in our life. I didn't really want to deal with it much, but there's debate about whether or not this man had committed a personal sin that resulted in his paralysis. Quite frankly, that's just, just not the thrust of the passage, and it's not helpful for us to really speculate because we don't know. But we can say for certain that this man's paralysis was a result of sin. That the storm that Jesus calmed a few verses ago is a result of sin. That the fever in Peter's mother-in-law was a result of sin. That the, the centurion's servant's sickness was a result of sin. Because we know the Bible tells us that when one sin came into the world through Adam, death reigned in the world. And so, if you ever find yourself wondering, is my physical infirmity a result? Is, is God punishing me? I can't answer the question for you for that. I don't, I don't know the mind of God to that degree. We have evidence in the Old Testament of God bringing physical affliction in people's lives for the purpose of the restoration, namely David, and you can see that in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. We have evidence of God bringing, bringing swift penalty on people in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. I just don't know. But what I can tell you is that whether your physical infirmity is a result of your particular instance of sin or a result of sin being in the world, I can tell you this, God wants to deliver you from it. God wants to rescue you from your spiritual paralysis. He wants to heal you, perhaps in the immediate sense, perhaps, if it be his will, but we can know for sure that he wants to heal you in the ultimate sense. That he, at the resurrection, if you were here for us in the Easter season, we studied four weeks of 1 Corinthians 15, and we learned so much about our resurrection bodies and what they will look like compared to, to our current bodies. And They'll be similar, but they'll be oh so different in the fact that they won't be paralyzed, that they won't suffer affliction, that they won't break, that they won't age, that they won't fail us when we need them most. And so I would submit to you that the issue of death is the thing that every single human being in this room and in this planet needs to be healed from. And I can also assure you of this, that by having genuine faith, in a genuine Jesus, you can be rescued and healed from that ultimate penalty of sin, which is death. You can be. Because Jesus has promised on the last day, all those who've trusted in him for forgiveness, all those who've 
who have believed in his substitutionary work on the cross will be healed. So is it right to pray for healing right now? Absolutely. James 5 tells us explicitly that we should pray for healing. Is it right to expect that God will heal? I think we have evidence here that it is. Is it right to despair if he chooses not to? No. And if we're honest, that's where it gets hard. If you've been a Christian for more than 10 minutes, you've seen people miraculously healed. Have you not? I mean, we could give testimony to that. I could give you testimony to that. I've seen babies healed. I've seen people uh, walk, again, who weren't supposed to walk. I, I have seen uh, all kinds of miraculous. I've seen cancer just come off the scan. Here's the scan. Here's the scan. with it. No cancer. And then I can tell you about a guy named Bo Ferguson at my previous church, 30 years old. Had some digestive issues, went to the hospital. They said, ha, no big deal, routine surgery. We'll have you fixed up. They cut him open, and they sewed him right back up because the cancer was everywhere. And somehow or another, they had not seen it. Bo never left the hospital. 30 days later, 31 years old, he's dead, leaves a, a widow of just, they only been married a couple of years. Had some well-intentioned folks come by one day who perhaps read too many books by people we shouldn't read books by. Told his wife, we've seen a vision of Bo riding bicycles with you. And so we're claiming that. Bo is dead. He's not riding a bicycle. And as the pastors, uh, those of us who are the pastors of this young lady, boy, did we have to undo some damage. Boy, did we have to write some theology. Boy, did we have to help heal some wounds because of that careless statement. And so I wish this morning that I had a formula for you. I, I wish that I could say that if you come to the prayer meeting and if you get the oil and if you have righteous people praying for you, you will be healed. I can't say that. You know why I can't say it? Because the Bible doesn't say that. But the Bible says that we have a loving Father who wants to hear from us. The Bible says that we should never stop asking. The Bible says that we should be persistent. The Bible says that we should believe in faith. And we have to trust God is more wise than us. And we have to decide if we really believe Romans 8.28 that we quote all the time. We have to decide that. But even if, friends, God does not heal the immediate effect of your disease, the immediate cause, if you trust in Christ, he will heal you in the ultimate sense. And, and here's the dirty little secret about when people get healed and we celebrate and, and we praise God and we should absolutely do that as the crowds did. The person who gets healed, they're going to die. Unless Jesus returns before they die, the healing is only temporary. But the ultimate healing that Jesus brings in his death, healing for us from eternal death, is not temporary. It is forever. And that you can be sure of.
to have a genuine faith in a genuine Jesus, which requires a genuine response. Let's look here at the last verse as we near the end of our time together. So we've dealt with the scribes issue and Jesus' divinity and so forth. And in verse 7, paralytic rose and went home. That's just a great line. No more explanation. Aaron and I were studying this week and we thought, surely there had to have been some other things going on here. Surely he went and told someone. Maybe. He's just not there. So use your sanctified imagination for what the paralytic did after he went home. He just got up and he went home. Not only having been set free from his infirmity, but having his sins forgiven. So that when he gets the next infirmity, it's okay. And then verse 8. When the crowd saw this, when they, when they saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So when we have genuine faith in a genuine Jesus, what is our genuine response? To give glory to God. I wouldn't make too much, if I were you, of the ending phrase there, have given such authority to men, because recall that the, the readers of this gospel know the end of the story. Us as readers of this gospel know the end of the story, and we know that just two or three verses before, Jesus has claimed to be divine. That's just the, that's just the reaction of the crowds. The, the scribes saw the theological angle of the situation and saw that Jesus was making a divine claim. The crowds just saw that a man got healed and thought, well, there's a man standing here. He looks like a man. He healed the man, so we're just grateful that God has done this. I mean, the lesson in that for us is that sometimes we just don't need to try to figure God out. Is that sometimes, not that we're flippant, and not that we, that we just say, oh, well, God will work it out, and walk around with rose-colored glasses, not that kind of stuff. But sometimes we just need to not try to figure God out. We need to lean on what we know to be true. And what we know to be true is that Jesus didn't just have authority to forgive sin in Matthew chapter 9. He has authority to forgive sin for all of time. He has the authority to give, forgive your sin and my sin. That's what we need. All of us, spiritual paralytics that we are, destined for death, destined for separation from God, destined for hell if we re- continue to rebel against him. Jesus desires for us to be healed from that eternal punishment through him. That's what Jesus desires of us. Uh, Back to Christopher. What I didn't tell you in the beginning was that I never met him. I never met him. He passed away on Christmas Day, uh, the year I was born. Uh, never knew him, never saw him, never touched him, never talked to him. But he taught me. You know how he taught me? Through the God-glorifying response of his family. So I firmly believe because the testimony that his family gave and Christopher, on the last day, is going to be healed. Perhaps we can go find him and talk to him. But he he wasn't healed in the body. 
Like, like the paralytic in our story today, he wasn't. But that man and that woman chose to glorify God despite their unanswered prayers. Because do you think they prayed for that mustard dish to go away? Do you think they prayed for the paralysis to go away? Absolutely, as would you and I. And it never did. But I can tell you this, that generations of people, hundreds if not thousands of people in that area because of the work that that family has done on behalf of handicapped folks reverberates throughout the upstate of South Carolina and reverberates in this room today through my testimony to you. So when we can't figure God out, when he doesn't heal like we want to, we can still glorify him. We can still praise him because of who he is and because of what he has done. I'm going to pray for us and then at the conclusion of my prayer, this is what I would like for us to do. Of invitation as always, so I would reiterate to you that your deepest spiritual and eternal need is to be delivered from the spiritual paralysis that you're in. And the way to do that is to trust in the shed blood of Jesus. To believe that his sacrifice is sufficient for you. So you have that opportunity this morning to come talk with one of our pastors and believe in the gospel and trust in Jesus for your eternal healing. But also what I would like to do is, is open the altar during the invitation for those of you who perhaps would want to seek God's face for your physical healing. You can come to one of our pastors, you can grab a friend, you can pray alone. There's no formula. There's no magic words. It's just you burying your heart before God. Stay in your seat. Whatever you need to do. The altar will be open for that. If you'd like to join our fellowship, the altar is open for that as well. So I'm going to pray. John will lead us in song. And then you move as the Spirit prompts you. Let's pray.